Hello and welcome back to the show. Welcome to World Wild Economy, the podcast which lies at the heart of monetary policy, capital markets and the radical candor. Uh, here I turn madness into musings and over the past week what I'm going to be discussing is Tesla purchasing Bitcoin, the Dogecoin rally, how Amsterdam has surpassed London as Europe's trading hub, as well as kind of mentioning quickly the Bumble IPO and uh, we're going to get stuck in. So I'm going to gloss over the Bumble IPO and how Amsterdam um, European trading has increased substantially over the past month. I'm going to kick kick um, kick things off with the Bumble IPO specifically. So Bumble is essentially a dating app, which IPO'd very recently, and it increased 70%, I think it was 72% on its first ever trading day. Right, and I believe the CEO, the founder, uh, she became the world's youngest female billionaire, self-made billionaire at the age of 31, which is great news and there's obviously a lot of hype around this. But what I see that's problematic about this kind of IPO potentially system or whatever is happening between um, behind the IPOs is that the way that these companies get priced, and this comes with a lot of tech IPOs or um, um, businesses of other nature, it's essentially that they IPO and there's many gains to be made on the first day. And this isn't just the idea of like um, crazy trading on the first day that you have to buy and sell during the day. Otherwise, you're going to make losses at the end of the day. Like, no, these are firms which IPO um, see an increase in its price and that price increase sustains. So it just kind of showcases to you the misvaluation that investment banks or essentially the underwriters uh, have caused. And actually, this comes at the expense of uh, the business, Bumble specifically, because they offer equity at a certain price, right? They go to these investment banks. Um, these people value their business and uh, the, the company, the Bumble, for example, then sets an IPO price, right? The price at which it's going to offer a lot of its equity or, a, you know, whatever amount of its equity. And so, it's an interesting problem because, okay, you go to these investment banks and, you know, you as an investor, for example, I can go to uh, an investment bank and say, okay, the Bumble IPO, uh, how much is it going to cost me? Well, really, the, their answer depends on whether you're wanting to buy or to sell because you're, if you're selling, for example, from Bumble's uh, point of view in terms of uh, actually issuing these uh, equities or, uh, sorry, issuing this equity, um, that number is going to be a lower valuation than is then dictated by the market uh, who are obviously uh, essentially buying this uh, stock from the investment banks or from the uh, essentially buying the stock, right? So the investment banks come, they give a low valuation for the for Bumble and they give a high valuation for those um, to whom they're going to be selling it later on during the market or, you know, at the initial public offering. And so this kind of difference, it makes you wonder like, okay, is this a loss or is this a gain to anyone? Well, essentially, it's a loss to Bumble and any firm which gets robbed on their IPO, and it's a gain to whoever makes that difference, selling the stock onto the market, onto the public markets later on, onto another investor, right? Secondhand purchases, uh, whatever. But nevertheless, uh, great news overall in terms of um, new IPOs, new businesses, etc. It has obviously had been a su successful IPO uh, insofar as um, the positive news around the covering. But nevertheless. Um, I'm kind of observing it, you know, with a pinch of salt, let's say. 
moving on, Amsterdam surpassing London as Europe's training hub. Essentially, what happened is that this is actually pertaining to European shares trading. So this isn't trading as a whole. This is in regards to European equities and European securities specifically. Uh, what happened is that London, uh, or actually we can look at it from Amsterdam's perspective. So Amsterdam saw a four times increase on its uh, European trading volume during January, as opposed to which it had in December, four times. I think it surpassed uh, somewhere around over 9 billion uh, euros, potentially. Uh, I think it was a day. Um, that doesn't sound right necessarily. But ne nevertheless, uh, it surpassed that of London. Um, and this comes at the kind of uh, consequence of the Brexit agreement, or specifically the lack of, because Brexit obviously happened at the beginning of this year, January 1st, the UK finally left the uh, EU, and with that came the severance of a lot of its laws and regulations. Specifically, even though the Brexit exit agreement, um, Britain's exit agreement did cover, for example, goods trade, uh, to a certain extent, it didn't necessarily cover services trade. And because of that, to continue trading European equities without any problems as it pertains to uh, overseas access, because now the UK is technically overseas, geographic, geographically always has been, but nevertheless, um, right now there's problems when it comes to regulations. The point is that because of this exit ag agreement, um, London-based, uh, city-based, uh, UK-based investment managers of firms had to set up uh, subsidiaries in, for example, Amsterdam uh, to continue trading European equities and European, um, essentially, securities. So this comes, again, at the expense of London and at the game to Amsterdam. But then you have to beg yourself the question, right? Even if Britain does secure a certain agreement in the future, uh, which covers these securities and covers the services trade, as I mentioned, will that necessarily mean that this training activity is going to go back to London? You know, these firms have already set up subsidiaries and what is the benefit to them reallocating again, right? Is there going to be a lot of cost efficiency from removing all the progress that has been made to uh, secure European trading volumes as they have done for Brexit? Uh, nevertheless, when we see how this unfolds and see whether this volume is going to be sustained, uh, I, for example, actually have started a module at my university called the Economics of the European Union and Brexit. And on this topic, I posed a question to my lecturer asking about um, just what kind of regulation might have underpinned this, uh, this, how Amsterdam has passed London in terms of European shares trading. He pointed me to these regulations and specifically exit agreement. And I think it will be something that I'm going to be researching further on. So for sure, I'm going to be uh, be talking about this on the podcast in the future, because in the, in the greater scope of Brexit and uh, its relations, relations with Europe or even just the kind of financial institutions and how the financial sector operates in London, um, that's what's going to change. And it'll be interesting to see. But nevertheless, um, that is, again, a conversation for a future date to see how this unfolds. Now I'm going to be talking about how Tesla recently bought uh, Bitcoin. Its corporate treasury did actually secure one and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. And, you know, you have to ask yourself why. Um, what is the point? Right. For example, I spoke with a friend. Uh, that friend suggested to me that maybe Elon Musk is capitalizing on the GME hype, on the GameStop, on the Wall Street Bets boys and how the retail crowd to a certain extent follows him and that, you know, whatever he tweets can be a market moving event, right? Each one of his tweets. 
And I would argue that that's not necessarily the case because uh, when it comes to Bitcoin and again, the kind of volatility that we see in terms of the, the price movements that can happen when the retail crowd follows, for example, Elon Musk can go the opposite way just as quickly, right? So the benefit that you're trying to post to Bitcoin in terms of uh, Elon investing in that on behalf of its firm or investment or not, whatever, I, I don't know what you might call that, um, him trying to essentially utilize his fan base, utilize these Redditors, utilize retail in general and the hype which he pr can produce on Twitter to then uh, flow funds into the Bitcoin, increasing its um, the size of uh, his corporate Bitcoin holdings, I wouldn't necessarily make that argument. But it's definitely something to consider. Nevertheless, these are only short-term fluctuations, short-term mechanics, as opposed to the kind of long-term consequence of holding Bitcoin, which again, like I said, companies holding Bitcoin in their treasuries face a certain accounting risk, right? Because Bitcoin, alongside other digital assets, like other cryptocurrencies, they're considered indefinitely, uh, indefinitely, indefinite lift, sorry, intangible assets. Uh, rather than, for example, like currencies, right? They're cryptocurrencies, but in this, uh, when you look at corporate treasury and regulation there, um, and accounting specifically, uh, they're not treated the same as currencies. And so any decrease in their value below that, uh, what the company had paid for them, even, you know, a temporary fluctuation can actually force a company to write down the value taken an impairment charge, which is called, which is the name given for this kind of, uh, the writing down of the falling value of some of these assets, right? As opposed to uh, currency risk, uh, this is a different type of uh, accounting risk. Nevertheless, it poses that kind of problem in terms of Bitcoin just as easily going up, can just as easily go down, for example, and therefore po pose a problem to the corporate treasury of Tesla, for example, on the screen now, if you're uh, watching the video, you can see it. If you're listening to the audio I, uh, version, I will describe this. We obviously see a massive spike in the Bitcoin uh, price when Tesla or when Elon Musk announced the news on February 8th or 9th. It was, uh, no, I think it was the 8th. Essentially, the price actually spiked 16% intraday. It sort of an 16% intraday rally in Bitcoin um, up to 45000 dollars which is actually up 770 percent uh from its mid-march lows back a year ago when covid um was becoming a very serious issue to the financial markets and so while tesla's uh, share price actually stands at around 860 dollars uh it's still up a very interesting 1700 percent um over the past 16 months this stock price has been consolidating recently and the reason behind that, and actually interestingly, so the reason behind um, Tesla's actions, Elon uh, Elon's ask actions in investing or you know purchasing Bitcoin, could be to actually cause a distraction, bit of a smokescreen, sort of a red herring, I believe is the um, word, in some of the regulatory issues that Tesla's having in China. Tesla over the past few years has been quite successful in conducting its business in China. Uh, even throughout the coronavirus, it was said to have continued its business at least at a better to, to a better extent, sorry, more favored you know extent than other firms. And so now with um, you know when it comes to the stock price, when it comes to Tesla's business, these regulatory issues 
obviously pose a great risk to the company's operations. You know, it's had favorable, favorable working conditions, favorable uh, contact with regulators over the past few years in having its, you know, gigafactory in China, in having access to different markets, and it having the possibility to work throughout the coronavirus. There might be problems of that, and therefore problems of the stock price, which, as I said, has been seed consolidating, right? And um, therefore, like I said, the purchase of Bitcoin, as you probably saw in the news, it was very widely covered. Uh, again, you might argue that it is a certain distraction from some of these problems that Tesla is facing. Moreover, what you can also see on the screen is the carbon footprint of Bitcoin. Again, if you listen to the older version, I would just describe the point is that the carbon footprint, sorry, of Bitcoin is very large. Specifically in 2019, the electricity consumed was uh, 124 terawatt hours. Um, if that doesn't mean much to you, that is the same as the country of Norway. Um, about 45, 40% uh, that of the UK. And this is at a great clash, for example, with Tesla's sustainable finance, uh, sorry, uh, sustainable energy, renewable energy, you know, pro-electricity mantra and um, motto, essentially. Uh, not only, the, the company isn't only focused on renewables and, you know, green and electricity stuff, but nevertheless, uh, investment in Bitcoin and adopting Bitcoin as a payment for some of its um, products, which Tesla did also announce, comes at a potential clash um, in terms of how energy intensive Bitcoin is. And that is to not discredit the potential role that it might have in our future, nor is it to uh, try and bash it for being energy intensive relatively. Um, it is just, again, Im important to point that kind of um, interesting contradiction out and therefore uh, allowing you to show, uh, showcasing you essentially, showcasing to you essentially how the situation should be taken with a bit of salt uh, when it comes to Tesla's true intentions or uh, what what they actually might be, right? But nevertheless, that is um, what, you know, Tesla might have to gain from Bitcoin in short. Um, I will now move on to the Dogecoin rally because that's been a very interesting thing. So Dogecoin, for those that you don't know, for those that don't know it, is a cryptocurrency and Doge uh, really relates to some internet meme uh, stuff, but it's seen an incredible rally recently uh, over the past uh, month, kind of starting at the same time as GME and GameStop and the Wall Street bets kind of uh, saga that we've covered also. And as you can see on the graph that I'm showing, essentially uh, on January 29th, it saw a massive spike in its price. That was around the same time, if not the exact same day, sorry, uh, as the trading halt in Robinhood. So you can argue that there was some money flowing from those assets and these kind of, you know, short squeeze uh, things back into, uh, sorry, in the, then into Dogecoin, which gives you an idea of the investor base that might be playing with this Dogecoin asset, asset if you may want to call it. It's market, market cap as of today, the 14th of February, Happy Valentine's Day is seven and a half billion US dollars. Yesterday, when I spoke to my friends on the same topic, it was eight and a half billion dollars. So it fell quite a bit, but um, actually during the first week of February, it saw a massive rally. Uh, it pushed its market value above the $10 billion threshold, which is traditionally used to kind of um, determine whether a stock is large or mid cap, right? So beyond that point, you argue for a stock to be a large cap. So again, this is a bit of like a sentimental thing, but I asked myself and I asked my friends, right? What is 
fundamentally different, if anything at all, about Dogecoin than is Bitcoin or other countries, uh, currencies, right? Uh, cryptocurrencies specifically, right? What makes this price go up or down? You know, why should I invest? Should, should you invest at all? And, you know, it turns out that Dogecoin was started in 2013 as a meme, as a joke, essentially, because anyone can cr technically create um, a crypto coin, a cryptocurrency, right? It is widely available technology. And what's interesting about Doge Dogecoin specifically is that, well, actually, before I go on to that, what's fundamentally different about Dogecoin than other assets or cryptocurrencies is nothing, right? Like I said, anyone can create it. The only difference is sentiments to it. And obviously, it's kind of acceptance in society as part of payment system or potentially just how efficient a currency, that, that kind of cryptocurrency is at transactions or whatever. But fundamentally, it's very much the same thing. And so it kind of poses the idea that whatever is driving the prices here is as much a joke as it could be just, you know, some meme, uh, just some meme that there, there isn't much to Dogecoin other than the fact that it's got Doge in its name. And it's, it's pretty absurd. It's interesting to see how this is going to develop. But the problem with Dogecoin uh, is that actually 50% of the float, around 50% of the float is held by 12 wallets, 12 accounts. So it's a very concentrated market, right? So, you know, uh, the, the people who had gained from the Dogecoin rally, which is up, I think, a thousand percent year to date. I mean, if you can see on the screen, uh, if, you, if you can see my screen, sorry, it's really only shot up uh, this past month and it has shot up an incredible amount. It's worth next to nothing in terms of dollars, but nevertheless, it has shot up, right? And this kind of craziness about cryptocurrencies, not only their volatility, but just the extent to which some of the demand for them is down to memes and sentiment and, you know, public opinion, really. It kind of also then poses the question, how are central banks and regulators going to approach this topic, right? Because how can they regulate it? Can they make stable coins? Uh, should they be able to control it? There's a lot of questions flying about. But uh, as I mentioned, stable coins... That is something that regulators and authorities are working on, right? Because you cannot argue against the growing importance of cryptocurrencies and specifically the, I guess, presence that they'll have in the future economy. I think it's going to be because of their efficiency and the growing kind of efficiency as, as per transactions of cryptocurrencies as opposed to tradition, more traditional fiat currencies. Uh, again, their biggest unique selling point is that they're not a fiat currency in terms of them being completely decentralized, right? With a fiat currency like the dollar, uh, euro, or the Chinese renminbi. Essentially, whoever has the printer for that fiat currency controls that currency and also the money flow. And so, for example, when it comes to the dollar, I think it's used for about 70% of the world trade. And it comes from the Federal Reserve in terms of that is where the control over the dollar stems from. And so, for example, as, as well as some of the U US authorities in terms of policy, such as embargoes and um, essentially the dollar can then be used not only for internal domestic purposes when it comes to monetary policy, right, printing, and um, that is expanding, and then alternatively um, clo closing in the money supply. It can also be used uh, to um, basically uh, retaliate against other countries when it comes to international trade, uh, you know, like I said, embargoes and different policies. I forgot the specific word that I was going to use. Um, oh, sanctions. That's the that's the one, right? Um, but that's only because the U.S., for example, when it comes to the dollar, has uh, the monopoly over money.
But here, if it comes to uh, cryptocurrencies, that is the, the case is the complete opposite, right? And so regulators are trying to create their own, for example, stable coins. So there is an idea for the digital do dollar and the di digital uh, version of each currency, which would have the technology of what we see uh, behind Bitcoin and Dogecoin even, um, that being utilized for stable coins. And what makes it stable is the government intervention in that it would be pegged to, for example, the dollar, right? One digital dollar would always equal one um, dollar, right? No more printed money dollar, whatever, cash dollar. Um, alternatively, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Because again, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, now people, as the world is going to move on to this kind of more tech, data-driven, tech-heavy world, not only is there going to be uh, a lot of public opinion and sentiment driving which currencies or which cryptocurrencies are going to be used. It's also going to be dictated by the amount of computing power that people have. And even though I'm not a big technology nerd, I know the extent to which computing power matters in the world of cryptocurrencies. Specifically, the more crypto, um, sorry, the more computing power a country has, I think, especially over a certain uh, cryptocurrency, if a country can possess 51% or more computing power, uh, it can actually, to a certain extent, control uh, the ledger specifically of that cryptocurrency, right? So this kind of, therefore, um, this idea is pushing, much like with the arms race or the space race or whatever race, um, is pushing countries to, as quickly as possible, develop quantum, com quantum computers and generate, create, as much computing power as they possibly can, right? Because crypto, the world is slowly moving into crypto, slowly or quickly. Uh, it's been quite abrupt over the past few years. And even though the price, again, like I said, it can be affected by memes and stuff not so as important or as quickly kind of uh, closely correlated with uh, its specific usability and uh, sentiment when it comes to that specific cryptocurrency, it is nevertheless making a presence. So that's what we have, what we have covered today. Uh, this podcast is being uploaded much later than usual. The video cast as well. Uh, nevertheless, if you wish, if you would wish to see more of this type of content, check out my other episodes of Worldwide Economy on this YouTube channel or on the Spotify or whatever it is that you're listening or watching to this, or you know, listening to or watching this. Um, but for that, um, if you uh, sorry, yeah. I was also going to say, if you'd like to check out some of my written content and in-depth articles as it pertains to monetary policy and macroeconomics, check out investingintellect.com. Without further ado, um, that's it. That's the end of the show. Have a great day, evening, morning, whenever you're listening to this, and goodbye.